Well, good morning. You heard earlier that I am George Murray, and God willing, I will be back with you for your global, world global emphasis in the last week of February. I've already been preparing for that time, and I'm so excited about the messages. I want to give them now. But you're going to have to wait until late February, unless, of course, Jesus comes back first. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, thank you for your singing this morning. Were you as thrilled as I was as we sang, Behold Our God? I mean, if you had cut my suspenders, I'd have gone straight to heaven. So if you have a Bible or a device on which you read the Bible, will you turn, please, to the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And if you're watching online, please look at your Bible as well. The title for our Bible and missionary message this morning is in the form of a question. Are we really asking for harvest workers? Are we really asking for harvest workers? And I think you will see why I have chosen this question as the title for our message as we go through this Bible passage together. So we'll begin reading with verse 35 of Matthew chapter 9. You watch in your Bible or on the screen as I read these words. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We'll end our Bible reading there for now. This is the Word of God. Now, I want you to look with me at the first two words of verse 35. Jesus went. Jesus went. The word went is the past tense of the irregular English verb to go. Jesus can tell us to go because he went. 
Jesus never asks us to do anything that he is not willing to do himself. Jesus never asks us to do anything that he has not already done. Jesus went. And where did he go? Look in your Bible. Jesus went through all the towns and villages. Every word in the Bible is important. Please notice here that it does not say that Jesus went through some of the towns and villages. It does not say that Jesus went through most of the towns and villages. It says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages. Do you know why? Because Jesus believed, first of all, in the importance of evangelism. Evangelism. And because Jesus believed equally in the importance of missions. Do you know the difference between those two things? Let me tell you. Evangelism, evangelism is reaching people who don't believe in Jesus. All of us need to be doing that. Missions, missions is reaching people who don't know there's a Jesus to believe in. Some of us, more of us, and I'm talking about everyone here in this room and listening online, more of us need to be doing this. Look at these two verses in the Gospel of Luke. The people, that is, of Capernaum, tried to keep him, that is, Jesus, from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Now, it's very possible that here at First Evan, somebody here in this room, in recent weeks and months, the Lord has been speaking to you about frontline, full-time, vocational missionary service. You believe God wants you to go to the unreached. And you've told your family and you've told some of your friends and some of them in a very well-meaning way have said, oh, no, don't do that. We need you here. Don't go there. We need you here. Our church needs you. Our, our city needs you. Our country needs you. See, that's, that's what was happening here. That's what they were saying to Jesus. We want you to stay here. And Jesus said, no, 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 I can't stay here. I've got to go over there. You know why? Because they've never seen me once. They've never heard me once. Look again at verse 35 in Matthew 9. And Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus ministered to the mental and the spiritual and the physical needs of the people. Now look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I am a Bible underliner. I like to mark 
my Bible. And in this verse, I've marked two things. I've marked the word saw, when he saw, so I've underlined saw. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And I've marked the words had compassion, so saw and had compassion. Then I've drawn a line connecting those two because they are connected by the word when. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, I want to talk to you just for a minute about this expression here, to have compassion, to have compassion. What does it mean to have compassion? Well, this expression in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written can be studied in Greek literature, and it's used to describe deep love or deep hate. It's a visceral word. It's a gut-level word. And if you and I were to translate this in terms that we can understand and that actually describes what the Greek means, we would say that to have compassion means to have your stomach tied into a knot. Has that ever happened to you? Your stomach ever get tied into a knot? What, what makes your stomach get tied into a knot? Well, it might be someone on Facebook that refuses to let you be their friend. Or it might be a Dear John letter from someone you cannot live without. It might be a final exam at school. Could be a pink slip from your employer. Could be a foreclosure notice from the bank. Could be a phone call from a collection agency. Could be divorce papers from a lawyer. Could be the biopsy report from the doctor's office. I the list I just gave you, I gave that to you because any one of those things tie my stomach into a knot. What is it that ties your stomach into a knot? More importantly, what was it that tied Jesus' stomach into a knot? Answer, lost people. Lost people. Look at verse 36 again. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. His stomach was tied into a knot. And here's the question I have, why aren't we more like that? When's the last time you or I cried over a lost person? I mean, be honest. Why aren't we more like Jesus here? I think there are many reasons, but one of them is right in the biblical text. It's because we're not looking. Watch. When he saw the crowds, his stomach got tied into a knot. So when you pull off the interstate and there's a man or woman there begging for money, do not make eye contact. You know the rule. 
when the PBS special comes on about the poverty in Haiti, change the channel. Get a sitcom. Don't look. Forty years ago, exactly, two Christian men put their heads and hearts together and wrote a Christian song that became very popular. It's so old, Christian young people think it's new. And it was entitled, People Need the Lord. How many of you remember that song? All right. And everywhere I would go to preach, it seemed that just before I would preach, a soloist or the choir or the praise team would sing that song. And I really liked it when it first came out, but I kind of got tired of it. You know what I'm saying? You want to have a meaningful experience with that old song? Uh, Go to the Wolf Chase Mall. You know what I mean. And sit down on one of the benches in the walkway between the stores. And get your phone and download that song legally onto your phone. Put your earbuds in. Look intentionally at the people that are there shopping as they walk past and listen to the words of that song. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eye. Lonely people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through silent pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides the silent cries. Only Jesus hears. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, he's the open door. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize that we must give our lives for people need the Lord? But that's not what we go to the mall to do. You don't go to the mall to look at people. You go to the mall to look at clothes, cosmetics, computers, and people get in our way. Listen to me. Jesus never went to the mall to look at clothes. He always looked at people. And when he did, his stomach got tied into a knot. Now, I'm not making this up. This is Bible truth. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10? The Jewish man who decided to make a trip from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and halfway down that road, he was ambushed and mugged and beaten and robbed and left bleeding and dying on the side of the road. And we read in that passage that a priest from Jerusalem came down, and when he got to that spot, he went way around on the other side and kept right on going. And then a Levite came from Jerusalem, and a religious worker. And as he got there, he goes way around on the other side, and then he keeps right on going. And then we read that a Samaritan man, now remember the Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. A Samaritan man came, and when he got there, he stopped and he looked. 
And it says his stomach was tied into a knot. Look, look at this verse in Luke chapter 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. His stomach was tied into a knot. Now, if you're a really good Bible scholar, and you're looking at this passage that I'm preaching, you would have observed that it says the priest and the Levite also looked at the man. But it's possible to look and not be moved. But it's impossible to be moved without looking. Are you looking intentionally at lost people that you see every day in this city of Memphis? So I'm not making this up, the connection between the, the moved heart always follows the seeing eye. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? A man who had two sons, the younger son came to his father, said he wanted his inheritance early. His father graciously gave it to him. He took that money and he went to a far country where it says in the King James Version of the Bible, I like the King James expressions, it says he wasted his substance with riotous living. And we know from later on in the chapter that that included prostitutes. And he blew the whole wad and he found himself a Jewish boy feeding pigs, eating the food that the pigs were eating. He says, this is nuts. I'm going to go back home. Maybe if I go back home, dad will allow me back on the farm and he'll at least allow me to be a hired servant. And so we read that he started home. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Same Greek expression. His stomach got tied into a lot. Do you know why the father saw him while he was still a long way off? Because that's where the father was always looking. By the way, we don't have time to look at the rest of that chapter, but there was an older brother, and he was out in the field when all this happened. And the, the younger brother comes back, the father runs out, they embrace, they go back to the house, the party gets started. The older brother was outside, he hears the music, he's like, what's going on? He goes in, he says, what's happening? And they say about his brother. He was out in the open field, but he never saw the reunion on the road. Do you know why he didn't? Because he wasn't looking. I was thinking about his work, his field, his 401k, his future. Look what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 4, verse 35. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The Greek word there, look, is teaomai. It means to really look. Are you doing that? So what would be some practical ways that we can intentionally look at lost people? Go on a short-term mission trip with First Evan. Take the Perspectives Missions course that's offered here in the city of Memphis. Get the book Operation World and read it every night as a family. Look at all the unreached people groups in the world. 
We did that as a family when our four kids were growing up. Every night we had a Bible and that book, Operation World, in the kitchen drawer. After supper, we would have time reading God's Word, praying together, and we'd pass that book around, Operation World. We know where all the unreached peoples are. We don't have to guess anymore. We know. We know how many there are there. We know how many missionaries are there, if there are any. And so on the lips of our children, because we'd pray around the table, would be places like Togo and Mauritania and Bhutan and Uttar Pradesh. You know where all those places are, don't you? What were we doing as a family? We were looking, asking God to tie our stomachs into a knot. Look at verse 37 now. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus is saying two things here, and the first one is this. The harvest is plentiful. Now, when Jesus says this, he's not speaking literally. He's speaking figuratively. He's using a farming analogy. So let's imagine, you know, two farmers down at the farmer's market, and they meet on the street, and the one farmer says to the other, "Uh, so how are things going? And the other farmer says, the harvest is plentiful. What does that mean? Does that mean that there's been a bumper crop? Does that mean that the barns are full? Well, it could mean that. Might be what Jesus meant. And if we were speaking today, it would be equally true. I want you to look at the statistics on the screen. Look here. Since 1945, the percentage of true followers of Jesus Christ has grown from 3% to over 12% of the total world population. Now, do you know why I chose the year 1945? Because that's the year I was born. So now you know how old I am. What I'm telling you is that in my short lifetime, the percentage of true believers has gone from 3% to over 12% while the world continues to explode in growth. That is awesome. Look at this. True followers of Christ in 1945 were 80 million. Today in 2023, over 950 million. Praise the Lord. But look at the, look at the phrase again. The harvest is plentiful. When Jesus says this, he's not talking about the reaped harvest. He's talking about the ripe but unreaped harvest. So, I want you to look at these statistics. Today, in 2023, nine out of every 10 people in the world are spiritually lost outside of personal faith in Jesus Christ. Nine out of every 10. Moreover, two out of every three people in the world right now have never once heard a clear explanation of the good news about Jesus Christ. No one has ever told them how they can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Two out of every three. And one out of every three people in the world today not only, not only are lost, not only have never heard a clear explanation, but one of it, every three people in the world has no true believer in Christ living near enough to them to tell him or her the message of Christ. That's 2.65 billion people, and mission experts will tell you that the fastest population in the world is among the unreached peoples, and therefore the figure is closer to 3 billion people. 
Now, when Jesus made this statement that the harvest is plentiful, there were 250 million people in the entire world. Today, there are over 8 billion people. What's my point? My point is that if it was true then, it's even more true now. Look again at the phrase, the harvest is plentiful. Look at the phrase. What does that mean? That means the need is huge. Write it down in your worship bulletin. There's a place for you to put this. The need is huge. What's the, when's the last time you looked at India? How many people here this morning have been in India? Put your hands up. Okay, look around. All right. When's the last time you looked at it? Just looked at India. There are more lost people in the country of India than all the lost people in Canada, the United States, Mexico, all of Central America, all of South America, the entire continent of Africa combined, just in the country of India. The need is huge. Then Jesus goes on to make a second statement. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the need is huge, but the workers are few. And I want us to think just for a minute about this phrase, the workers are few. And I want you to look at these statistics. Today, approximately 70,000 young people are studying in evangelical Bible schools, Bible colleges, and seminaries in North America. Now, I'm not talking about Christian liberal arts schools. I'm just talking about Bible colleges and seminaries. And the reason why I've chosen those two groups of schools is because, generally speaking, if a young man or woman goes to a Bible college or a seminary, they're entertaining serious thoughts of some kind of full-time Christian ministry. They don't all do that, but that's, that's kind of why they're going there and studying. So here's the question. Uh, how many of those that are studying in evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible schools and seminaries, how many of them are planning to go to the unreached people of the world? How many of them are planning to be missionaries? We know because we take take exit polls in all of our schools, and then we combine the statistics. And here's what, it's, what we found out. Of these 70,000, 5% plan to become missionaries, and 95% plan to remain in their homeland to do full-time ministry or to enter the marketplace. Question, what percentage of the entire world population lives in North America? Canada and the United States. What percentage? Answer, look at the screen. Less than 5% of the total world population lives in North America. Oh, Dr. Murray, that can't be true. There's got to be more people than that. I mean, we got New York. You know, Atlanta, Miami, Houston, Dallas, Chicago, Los Angeles, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. Less than 5% of the total world population, including immigration, legal and illegal. So do you see where I'm going? Watch. Of the 70,000 in Bible colleges and seminaries, 5% plan to minister to the 95% of the world. The vast majority are still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. And 95% plan to minister to 5% of the world, the majority of which has heard about Jesus at least once. I don't know about you, but I think something's terribly out of whack. Look at this statistic. There is one full-time paid evangelical Christian worker in North America for every 200 people. I didn't say every 200 Christians. I said every 200 people. Somebody's getting paid to tell people about Jesus. One for every 
200. And then you go to Italy where my wife and I were missionaries. There's one for every 200,000. And then you go to Algeria where there's one for every 2 million. And then you go to those places in the world where there's not one for any. North America, where we are sitting here in Memphis, Tennessee, is the, still the most evangelized continent in the world. Yes, we are post-Christian. Yes, we are post-modern. Yes, we are moving away from the moral pillars on which our nation and the nation to our north were founded. But when it comes to access to the gospel, there is still no continent on the face of the earth where there is a more equitable distribution of true believers per capita than right here in North America. So let's go back to Jesus' statement in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, I don't know about you, but when I just think about the statistics I gave you just a moment ago, a big question comes to my mind. And I'm wondering if it comes to your mind. Here's the question. What can we do about this? What can we do about this? And the wonderful thing is that Jesus tells us. Look at verse 38. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I want you to see this same verse in the New Living Translation of the Bible. Here it is. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send out more workers for his fields. Now, I want to just stop there for a minute and tell you what happens. I, I preach all over the place, and I don't, I, I, I'm never going to stop pushing the go button. The world needs Jesus. And when people hear the statistics that I shared with you this morning, people that are really listening and sincere, they will come up to me afterwards and say, wow, you know, I always knew that, you know, it was a great needle in the mission. I had no idea it was that great. I mean, you know, we're like in 2023. That's like 2023 years after Jesus gave the commission. I mean, it's, the numbers have got to go down, right? No, three billion people. And, 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 and if it's really true what you said, Dr. Murray, um, if I were 30 years younger, and you gave an invitation for missionary service, I'd be the first one down the aisle. But I'm older now, and I've got health issues, and, and there's probably parts of the world that I couldn't go, and they're absolutely right. Somebody else comes to me and says, wow, if that's really true, what you said about, you know, the great need and the few workers. Um, my wife and I have learned the, the joy of giving, and, and, and we've just learned over the years to give more and more and more, and, and I, I think we're, we're maxed out. I know it's going to take a lot of money to get the number of missionaries to the field that need to get there, and, but I think we're maxed out. I, I just don't think we could give anymore, and there are some people who, who could say that. Not a lot, but there's some who could say that. But isn't it interesting here that when Jesus says the need is huge, the workers are few, he says nothing about going. He says nothing about giving. He talks about the one thing that everyone here in this room can do and that we all do the least. Pray. Pray. Thus the title of my message this morning. Are we, First Evan family, are we really asking for harvest workers? 
Columbia International University did great commission workshops, missionary workshops in 400 churches here in North America. We took anonymous polls from all those churches. We found out that the average Bible-believing church like First Evan spends no more than 1.5, one and a half minutes a week corporately in prayer for world missions. The average pastor said he never prays more than seven minutes a day about anything. And only 1% of husbands and wives who filled out the survey honestly said that they never pray together as a couple about anything except thank you, Lord, for the food. Look at this verse again in the ESV, which is the Bible that most of you have in your laps. Look at what it says. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, let me just ask a quick question. How many of you here this morning know what the Septuagint is? Put your hands up. Uh, it's not bad, by the way. It's a, it's a, okay. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Seventy men did it, so the name Septuagint. Seventy men did it, interestingly, in the country of Egypt, and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And in the Greek Septuagint, this expression, which is given here in Matthew 9:38, pray earnestly, occurs twice. It occurs in Exodus chapter 32, and in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Now, don't leave me now. I know we're right at the end, but just listen to this. In Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 9, we have the story of Moses going up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, the people turn away from the Lord. And they get Aaron to make the calf, and you know, all that's going on. Moses has no idea. Moses is coming down the mountain with the two tables of stone in his hand, and the Lord speaks to him and says, Moses, you're not going to believe what happened while you're gone. And the Lord tells Moses what the people have done. And then the Lord says this to Moses, I am so upset with these people that I'm going to wipe all of them out, kill them all, and start over again with you. And when the Lord tells Moses that, you can check it out. Exodus 32, Deuteronomy 9. Moses falls on his face before the Lord and he prays earnestly. He says, God, don't do that. Kill me. Don't kill them. This is desperate praying. Is that happening at first event? In fact, in those two passages, Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 9, we read an amazing little phrase, something that the Lord says to Moses. And I was thinking of this as we had the elder prayer this morning. Give the Lord no rest. You know what the Lord says to Moses in both of those passages? Leave me alone. That's what it says. Leave me alone. Let me ask a question. Anybody here pray so much that the Lord is saying to you, would you just leave me alone? Has the Lord said that to you or me recently? Leave me alone? This is desperate praying. This is 
husbands and wives praying together. This is parents with children praying together. This is small groups praying together. This is the pastoral staff praying together earnestly. And then the Lord says, when that kind of prayer happens, here's what I'll do. He says, I will send out labors into his harvest. Now, the word send out is the Greek word ekbalo, and you'll see it in your worship bulletin, ekbalo, ekbalo. I want everybody to say that together with me. Here, ekbalo. Everybody, here we go. Now, you have to do the, do the, the Greek in the middle. Okay, here we go. Oh, very good. All right. Do you know what the word ekbalo means? Now, here it says send out, but it really means to force out, to push out, to thrust out. Watch. It's the expression used all throughout the Old Testament for the casting out of demons. This is violent activity. This is forceful activity. That's what God does. He comes upon people. They can't stay. They have to go. And that only happens in response to earnest praying. It's the same expression used in John chapter 2 when Jesus walks into the temple and he sees the money sellers and the, the dove sellers and the money changers and he gets, remember he makes a little, plat, little platform, he gets way up high and he says, may I have your attention please here in the temple, everybody look up here. Okay, this is my father's house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it into a den of thieves and I would like to have a show of hands of all those that would like to volunteer to leave. Oh, yes, God bless you. I see that hand back there. You may go. Oh, I see that dove seller over there. You want to leave? Yeah, that's what, is, that, is that what it says he did? No, it says he made a physical whip, and he walked right down among the people, and with that whip, he ekbalowed them. He drove them out. They couldn't stay. They had to go. That's what's happening at First Divan when people start praying earnestly. People will be coming to the pastoral staff and say, we've got to go. We can't stay. God is moving on our hearts. He's thrusting us out. Is that happening at First Divan? Is that happening to the church in North America? I'll tell you where it is happening in South Korea sending out more missionaries per capita than any church in the world. They all get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go to the church and pray before they go to work. Now, one more word of warning, warning before we finish the message. Listen carefully. In the Greek New Testament, there's no chapter division between Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 10. It's all one passage. So I want you to see how the end of 9 and the beginning of 10 go together. And I'm going to do this with Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. Look at this. The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was, an oh, excuse me, what a huge harvest, Jesus said to his disciples. How few workers on your knees and pray for harvest hands. Now look at the beginning of chapter 10. The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. Jesus called 12 of his followers and sent them into the right fields. If you go back to the beginning of the passage we started to study, it was to those 12 that Jesus spoke. Now here, the ones he urged to pray are the ones he's pressing into service. Here's my warning, and then I'm going to pray. If you take this seriously as an individual or as a married couple or as parents with your children, or as the pastoral staff of this church, and you begin to pray earnestly that the Lord will send out labors, don't be surprised if the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to be the answer 
to your prayer. Let's pray together. The harvest is plentiful. The need is huge. The workers are few. Therefore, go, no. Give, no. Pray. And when earnest praying takes place, going will happen. Giving will happen. Sufficient giving will happen. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for speaking to us this morning. Help us not to just say, oh, that was really neat. I never saw those things in that passage. Lord, help us to pray as never before. In Jesus' name, amen.